Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, joined as ever very early in the morning today by my co-host, Dr. Renu Epen, consultant urologist here at Peter Mac as well. Good, very early morning, Renu. Good morning, Declan. Yes, very early, pitch black outside, cold, chilly Melbourne morning, but yeah, small price to pay though. Winter, to yeah, it's a great guest. Worth getting up early in the morning for our guest today Absolutely. and our topic, uh, I must say, because as jobbing urologists, jobbing prostate cancer specialists as we are, uh, today's topic is just something we see almost every day, isn't it? All the time. Very relevant. Yep. So today we're going to talk about MRI prostate, which of course we love talking about anyway, but specifically we want to talk about the role of MRI in active surveillance. Uh, really, really interesting topic for us because it's not new, of course, but I think it's fair to say that the data out there to guide us on how we might use MRI uh, for active surveillance um, is emerging. Uh, and I think a lot of clinical practice is based around hunches in this field, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, a lot of questions about, you know, uh, how do we use this MRI result? Can we can we avoid a biopsy for another couple of years? You know, does it trigger a biopsy? It causes a lot of anxiety for, for patients and clinicians. Yeah, because we don't want to be doing a biopsy every year or two or three for these men on surveillance um, uh, necessarily, do we? But, That's right. Um, um, so MR there squarely uh, in the discussion today. And it's been triggered really today's podcast by two nice systematic reviews uh, it published in the European Urology family recently. We'll put the links in the show notes. And a really yeah. nice um, editorial written uh, in the European Urology by uh, one of our favourite friends in prostate MRI. It's Professor Anwar Padani, who's joining us from London today. Uh, good evening to you, Anwar. Hello, Declan. So good evening, how Anwar. How old is it? It, it, it? it must be nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's it's six. It feels like four a.m., but it's six a.m. It's six a.m. Just after winter solstice, of oh, course, for us. You should be up by now. You should be operating. And look at look. We're looking here, and we can see the sunshine beaming through in London at you know, nine or ten o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. A total opposite. Yeah. But you know. uh, Anwar is quite used to surgeons. Of course, he thinks that we should already be in the operating theater. <laughs> so let me tell you a bit about Anwar. So he is um, a consultant radiologist uh, specializing full time in cancer imaging, but he's very well known in the GU world, of course, because of his interest in prostate imaging, prostate MRI, I suppose, maybe in particular, but I know he's interested in novel imaging as well, other novel imaging. Um, and he's been very involved in the PIRADS committee, of course, in standardizing the way we interpret MRI and very many publications in this area. He does the most fabulous plenary talks on imaging in prostate cancer. He's one of my favorite people to listen to. So we're going to put a link into his YouTube channel where he actually very generously um, posts most of his big talks. They're just fantastic to go and have a little snapshot for uh, what's going on in prostate imaging he is a, 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 a professor subscribe and subscribe like he's like one of these Absolutely, influencers yeah. you know give me a thumbs up subscribe <laughs> you know he's going to retire on the profits from his youtube yeah. channel very he's soon. put a lot of work into it i mean it's amazing what what he's got on there so yeah definitely subscribe so, um, yes, so he's a consultant radiologist, uh, a professor of radiology. Um, he's at Mount Vernon Cancer Centre uh, and he's a professor at the Institute of Cancer Research, the ICR uh, in London. And also, before we kick off into our main topic, we wanted to talk to Anwar about um, his role in uh, the International Cancer Imaging Society, ICIS. And we've got a link in here as well, uh, because we know they're very active in this area. Obviously, they're not just uh, GU, but they do a lot of great GU stuff. And Anwar, you've got a, a few roles there. So before we um, talk about our topic and welcome our second fabulous international guest, uh, tell us a little bit about the ICIS. Okay, so ICIS and not ISIS um, <laughs> was founded many, many years ago as a, as a, as a travelling club. 
um, you know, as an educational club, we went to different countries, we did education, had great fun uh, talking uh, to our friends and educating people around the world. Uh, so the International Cancer Imaging Society are based in London, founded by Janet Husband and Rodney Resnick, uh, original founders, uh, and now has gone from strength to strength. Um, and we're a cancer imaging society dealing, you know, with the whole breadth of, of cancer from, uh, from, from the head to the, to the toes, I suppose. Um, we have um, a fellowship of about, I'd say, 80 to 90 fellows who are only chosen on the basis of their academic achievements. But most importantly, they have to be nice people. <laughs> so so that one of the things is, would you take this person out for a drink? Would you introduce him to his wife or your wife? And if the answer is no, then they don't join. But anyway, so um, it's, a, it's a great club to join. Um, and it's it's... And we have fellows and we have members. Um, so we do a whole bunch of educational activities, uh, online courses, uh, such as webinars. We do online courses that are very practical. So we run case studies. Uh, so, for example, I'm looking at the schedule this year for the rest of this year. We've got a master class in whole body uh, MRI on two occasions, and that's already sold out. Uh, and uh, two master classes in imaging of the prostate, and that's an a, it takes that, that takes an A to Z approach. So, from diagnosis to essentially death, you know, cord compression, uh, castration resistance, the whole thing is taken into account. Uh, so we tend to be very kind of systematic about this sort of thing. We do AI courses, uh, in, you know, radionomic courses, and how it relates to imaging and imaging in cancer. So very, very active. And we have a cancer imaging journal, which is ranked very highly. And Declan, one of your colleagues, Rod Hicks, is the editor. Um, oh, that's the that journal. Yeah, we've yeah. written a couple of papers in there. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Cancer imaging. So, yeah. so, and it's very successful. We've got lots of papers from China. Yeah. Most of them rejected because uh, Rod doesn't <laughs> like to do that much editing. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's a successful, a yeah. very successful good impact factor well i didn't know oh, that wow, was fantastic. your journey okay that's a fabulous it, overview and these courses you speak of um are they all virtual nowadays and can international a lot most of our listeners are international can can people go to yeah. the the icis website and sign up for these Just, courses exactly you can sign on for these courses so some of them are listening only like webinars but we have these courses where you actually get your cases and you do interactive hands-on so you know we put up the cases you read them you you give us your opinions. We have workbooks here that you have to work through. I mean, you know, last time I did one which was on oncological body MR. We have people from Argentina, Namibia, South Africa, um, Peru. You know, so lots of people joined from all over the world, Malaysia, all kinds of places. And Anwar, are they pitched to mainly radiologists or or surgeons? What what's your audience like? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say it's pitched mainly to radiologists. I mean, we we've, we've thought about pitching to, you know, other interested people, but it tends yeah. to be fairly high level. You see, so you know, once I go into echo train lengths and field of views, you know, usually you guys will just zone out, um, <laughs> and so it, it does tend to get pitched to a rather smaller audience. Yeah. yeah. And how, how have you found this transition to the virtual world? It, it must have been relatively more straightforward for the Cancer Imaging Society than, than other societies. 
Yes. So, I mean, it has its challenges because you can imagine that we run these courses and we have these giant data sets. Yeah. We have these giant data sets, which are, you know, gigabytes each case. And so how do you get that to uh, into into the desks of several people all over the world? So we start using Amazon uh, web services and, you know, that sort of thing. So we've had to innovate to get there. But actually, it's surprising it's worked very well after a few hiccups, of course, but. Fantastic. Well, do please go and have a look at the ICS website. Uh, They're fantastic. And I know they also get very involved in multidisciplinary activity at other meetings. Anwar is um, very prominent, uh, as are some of our other favorite big urologists in GU um, at the big urology meetings as well, because it's it's fantastic partnerships to see um, uh, people like this come into our EAU and meetings like that and run courses. That's right. Um, So let's introduce our second guest, uh, uh, welcoming back. Uh, We're a special guest that she's coming back after all this time. Yeah, it's very special this morning, our, our guest from our very first episode ever. And she came back, Professor <laughs> Caroline Moore, uh, also joining us from London this morning. Good evening, Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Nice to see you all. And lovely nice to, to see, see you. you. And of course, we can see you um, uh, in your uh, with your lovely London evening behind you. Uh, the sun's going down in London and we're here in the freezing cold early in Melbourne. But that's OK. It comes around, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and Caroline, we were uh, is a professor of urology at UCL in London. And I'm sure the listeners to this podcast who have any interest in urology or prostate cancer will know of uh, Professor Moore and her team at UCL who've done some of the best uh, clinical work in uh, bringing MOR into urology urology practice, uh, including um, uh, she was senior author on the uh, precision trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, which changed things forever, I think, here. Certainly led to reimbursement of MRI uh, here in Australia for early detection, which we're not talking so much about today. But actually, at the same time, we got reimbursement for um, active surveillance as well. So we have no barriers for patients having MR for early detection, uh, thanks to you, and flow-on effect into active surveillance. Um, and Caroline, as Renu just said, was on our very first episode of GUcast more than 50 episodes ago, back in March 2020. I remember yeah, end of March 2020. Yeah, was on pro-PSMA, and yeah, now yeah. we've got it back for an MRI chat. Yes, it's fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> so w- welcome, Caroline. <laughs> Okay, um, so we want Caroline to give us some of her expert uh, overview uh, as we talk to Anwar now about this more recent data about AMR uh, for active surveillance. So Anwar, over to you. Um, we'll put links into the podcast, but uh, in summary, uh, what is this very, these very t- good systematic reviews in European urology telling us about the role of AMR in active surveillance? Okay, so, so, you, so Declan will put up two systematic reviews, one in European Urology Oncology, and one in European urology. Um, I, I've now looked at both, but I was only the primary reviewer on one of them. And of course, I, I'm not allowed to tell you which one. Uh, the larger of the two studies was 15 studies, uh, over 2,240 patients. Um, patients were evaluated when they were on active surveillance. And the question was very specific. How good is serial MRI to rule out upgrading and so replaced the need for a regular uh, surveillance biopsy. So this is not the original biopsy, this is not the confirmatory biopsy, but this is the surveillance biopsy. So it's looking at that space. Now, it turns out that both studies are more or less the same because they've used more or less the same uh, data set. Um, The upgrading rate was about 30%, 27% to be precise. 
and the MRI suggested upgrading in 30%. So you think, great, mm. upgrading 30%, MRI suggests 30%, they should be 100% concordance. And of course, not true. Yeah. It turned out that was not true. So the issue was that MRI would suggest progression in about one third of cases. So these patients would undergo both a systematic and a targeted biopsy. But in only about half of these patients would you really have histological upgrading problem. And these were the true positives. And that means the rest were false positives. So no upgrading underwent a biopsy for what? Problem. And on the flip side, MRI was non-progressive. In other words, either negative or stable with a positive MRI, but stable. And so these patients should potentially avoid a biopsy. And it turns out that of the 600 men or so in that group, about 100 did actually have a upgrading. In other words, they would have been missed if they hadn't undergone a biopsy. So there's a problem. So in other words, serial MRI in patients on active surveillance, so we're talking about the surveillance biopsy, is not accurate enough either to rule out upgrading or to rule in upgrading for GG2 and above. But it seemed to be pretty good at GG3 and above. So one conclusion that you can draw is that you shouldn't rely on the MRI alone or primarily uh, to prompt a, a biopsy. And in fact, you know, the clinical and the PSA, uh, particularly the PSA kinetics is important. But there are three or four additional observations. The majority of the upgrades were in fact microfocal 2 plus 2. Sorry, uh, uh, yeah. GG2 cancers. Um, so these patients, in fact, should be suitable for continued AS anyway. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. If an MRI was completely negative, so you didn't see a thing, then the negative predictive value was actually very reasonable and quite high. Um, and even, you know, when you looked at the overall negative predictive value, it was still 81 to 85%. So it's not perfect, but it wasn't bad. PSA kinetics, I think, can be helpful. And one of the things you really have to consider now is that a lot of these upgrades that we're seeing are not real upgrades. They seem to be reclassifications, probably because of original sampling errors. Mm. So the, the take-home points are that, you know, at the beginning of AS, MRI definitely has a role, patient selection. At confirmatory biopsies, you should be using it, and that's in the guidelines. But the changing phenotype itself is not enough alone to prompt either additional sampling or to act as a trigger in the absence of resampling. And that means we need to communicate with you guys much better than we do. Uh, so the structured reporting, the precise system that Caroline will talk to you about is going to have to be important so that you know how good we are or how good we are not. Otherwise, there's a real risk that MRI may be pushing patients 
into active treatment when they shouldn't be being pushed in that direction. So there are some cautionary messages as well. And well, that's a that's a fantastic summary. And and you've done a lot of work um, in terms of standardising MRI reporting. And I guess one of the questions that come up is, um, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of heterogeneity when it comes to MRI MRI reporting, um, the consistency of that reporting, reproducibility of those results. How do you think those factors influence um, influence these findings? Okay, so in fact, I addressed that in in my um, in my editorial, and you're right. I mean, you know, we know that the that the NPV is very good and very tight. The PPV is all over the place, and that's dependent on a number of things that we need to get right to produce a positive predictive value. And you know, there are certainly things we can do, like you know, quality of images, training, you know. AI, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the, the but that, I don't think it gets over the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is that we are still going to run into this problem. And just by being more accurate, I don't think you're going to improve these results. Because I think there's still a fundamental issue with grade inflation and biopsy sampling. And I'm not sure that working on the images or the imagers is necessarily going to be enough of a step change to reverse this trend that we're seeing. So I'm, I'm firmly convinced that the answer is in the communication and the, the secondary role of MRI rather than the primary role of MRI in this particular instance. I don't know if Caroline would agree with you there. So I think there's, um, there's a few points I disagree on, certainly. And I think there's a few misconceptions. So, for example we see that a standard trust protocol for surveillance is sort of perhaps what we should be doing is what the guidelines say we should be doing but if we look at the data for that both in the european prea study and in the us community study we see that neither men nor physicians stick to that so one in four men choose radical treatment rather than continued surveillance because of anxiety. I think it's a travesty. I really do. (laughs) We also see that less than one in three men go with the recommendation for a protocol biopsy by the time you get to seven to 10 years. And when we think about it, the risk of prostate cancer increases with age. So you start off, you know, youngish, and by 10 years, you're not as young as you were, and your actual risk has increased. But that, at that point, you're really fed up of surveillance and you're fed up of biopsies. And these aren't generally non-compliant men. Their PSA compliance is in the order of 90%. So they're happy to come and get testing. And that says to me two things. It says that men don't want it, men on surveillance. But it also says clinicians don't believe in it. Because if they really believed in it, I think a lot more patients would do it. So, so they don't. So I think there's a myth that standardized biopsy is something that we actually do and standardized surveillance. I then think there's another myth about clinically significant cancer. So, and I'll, I'll talk about our data set, but we allow men in with Gleason 3 plus 4 and with visible and non-visible Gleason 3 plus 4. And of course, those men who've been diagnosed with 3 plus 3 as well. And actually, if you reset the bar and say what we really want to avoid here is Gleason 4 plus 3, because that's everybody recommends in a man who's healthy, that's what we should be looking at. So 
our data set and in fact Peter Pinto and the NIH data set set four plus three as their bar because we already know the question we're asking isn't is there some cancer it's has that cancer truly become significant such that we must move to treatment in a timely manner so I think that would I'd be really interested to see both of those systematic reviews redone resetting the bar Mm. the other thing is that we don't make decisions based on protocol alone. So the PSA density, I think, has a really important role to play. And when we look at the groups that have used PSA density and the precise scoring, we see that your precise score for progression correlates well with a change in PSA density. So when I'm setting parameters for men of when your next scan is or when we'll next have a conversation about it, it, at some point it will be based on the change in PSA density. And I think that's a really relevant factor that we don't use often enough and then we see from our uch uh, cohort of um i think the last publication was probably 560 men that there's a real difference between non-visible three plus four and visible three plus four so for the men with visible three plus four they're at the highest risk of progression and actually in most men non-visible three plus four i'm very happy to keep that on surveillance it might influence a treatment decision if they've got you know, a visible 3 plus 4 on one side and non-visible on the other, and they're young. I might say, look, maybe focal therapy, not, not the best, because that non-visible 3 plus 4 may change at some point. But actually, if in their mid-70s, non-visible 3 plus 4, I think, isn't uh, of particular significance. So I think there's a lot of changes that need to be made in the, in the realm of active surveillance. What we do see in our UCH cohort, where we use MRI as the the next test, so nobody gets a biopsy without an MRI, and we do a baseline MRI before you come into surveillance if you've not had one pre-diagnosis, and then we do a confirmatory MRI at 12 months, so no confirmatory biopsy, wow. confirmatory MRI, check out the sort of quality control and all the rest of it. And then from that, you're risk stratified. So if you've got a visible lesion, three plus four on a biopsy, you're young and fit for treatment, but maybe you're wanting to defer to complete your family or you've got a very busy time at work, then we'll be MRing you more often. If you've got non-visible three plus three that stays non-visible, there's no next date for your next MRI or indeed your next biopsy. We track your PSA density. And when that moves, then we then we move and we do an MR. And sometimes the prostate's had a growth spurt. And actually, although your PSA's gone up, your PSA density's fine. There's nothing to see and you can continue. And sometimes it goes up and actually you've developed a lesion. And we do see people developing lesions on, on surveillance. So to my mind, the way we should be looking is at a, a dynamic risk prediction model where we're taking into account baseline risk factors. We're also taking into account what the level is at which we would treat. So, for example, in somebody in their 70s, that might be a different level for treatment than somebody in their 50s. And that we should be constantly updating those algorithms so that we get a risk-adapted surveillance program. And I think that's the way we should be looking at it. Wow, that is a fantastic summary from Caroline. What a summary. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet that's point. That's right. I should say we've got two of our young research fellows sitting in the studio this morning because they want to start uh, their own webcast, Sean and Gideon. Did you hear that? Like when you're coming this up to do your, your exam. This is your 6am That's it. You're listening to, to a master and a mistress uh, yeah. of this there. 
But Caroline, if I can come back to you about a couple of those points, I think it's, um, yeah, where do you draw the line? Um, and Anwar mentioned that the AMR will tend to miss these low volume great group twos and so on. Um, a theme I like to explore um, when talking to patients about the value of a biopsy versus an AMR, or indeed when I talk about the whole area of focal therapy is about how much uncertainty we are all um, willing to accept in these situations. So, of course, what we hear from this data is that if we do a biopsy, we're more likely to pick up small foci of pattern four, small focus three plus four or whatever. But does that really matter? So if you want that certainty, yeah, sure, then you're going to be ending up with these protocol biopsies every so often. But if you accept some uncertainty um, based on our presumption, as you just pointed out, that missing a little bit of three plus four is not going to matter very much. And then when it becomes visible, as you say, uh, then that is is a, a more acceptable trigger, I suppose, for some sort of intervention. But in between that, in between having um, a biopsy that might show this versus an MR that shows it, uh, there is uncertainty to be, ex- to be accepted by the patient and by the clinician. What do you think? Not that that's yeah, a bad I think thing. I, I think accepting uncertainty is not a, necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to speak to our, you know, our, our, our clinical community and our patients about the uncertainty you might be willing to accept. Absolutely. And I think one of the phrases that I will sometimes use is, is there's no risk-free strategy. So if you don't like the anxiety or uncertainty of surveillance, you can absolutely opt for radical treatment in, in many cases, particularly if you've got some three plus four and it's visible, but that can come with its own problems. So there isn't a strategy where we can put you back to never having heard of prostate cancer and not having to think about it. So given that that's the case, are you a person who would prefer perhaps something more in the way of side effects, but the certainty that your prostate's in a bucket and you don't have to think about it much, just a blood test every six months or so, or do you prefer to sort of keep things as they are and monitor things and step in as needed? And different people will make a different decision based on their their personality, what their priorities are. And I think that's absolutely fine. It shouldn't be one strategy for everybody. But working out the parameters, there are people who come to me for surveillance and I'll say, no, I can't recommend surveillance. If you're declining treatment right now and you've still declined treatment in a year, I'll have another look and we'll keep discussing things, but don't think I'm recommending surveillance for you. And then, of course, there's also people who come with very low-risk disease and are desperate to have some treatment and focal treatment sounds great. I'll say, actually, you don't meet the criteria for that. You don't have enough cancer risk for me to put you at the small risk of bother and whatever you might get after focal therapy. So, yeah, I think we have to set our parameters, but to remember that men can make their own choices within those parameters. Absolutely. And, and Caroline, I mean, like, like you've mentioned, you know, active surveillance is this ongoing relationship between a patient and the clinician. And something that I find in this era now of more frequent imaging, and we see that with PSMA PET all the time, is patients want that scan, you know, more frequently and earlier. So you've mentioned this cohort of patients who may have Gleason Grey Group 2, 3 plus 4 disease, um, non-visible lesion on MRI, and you'll follow their PSA density over time. How do you deal with the, the repeated patient requests for the next MRI? So we have a term for that. So um, I like to call it MR addiction. Yeah. And essentially, <laughs> you, like with being addicted to anything, you know, chocolate, tea, all my usual vices, 
You need to set your parameters at, at the beginning. Yeah. So in fact, and it's a bit like the sort of pre-diagnosis chat. So I've had people, men say to me, when I tell them that they've got five millimeters of non-visible three plus four, or three plus three or whatever, oh, that's great. That's a real relief. I'm going to go off and do this. Where other people might be devastated by that because they've sort of misunderstood. Yeah. So if they know at the outset that this is what we do, you've got an MR then, and then after that, we'll look to see your risk and you'll have a PSA on a six monthly basis and you can paste it into the hospital or email us or whatever. And we'll have a discussion and you won't need another scan until whenever, then it's fine. If they've met somebody either at our hospital or somewhere else where they say we'll do an MRI scan every year, then you've got a massive problem because people yeah. feel safe. They feel safe having a negative scan. And when I say, well, I can't really justify it because your risk hasn't changed. That's really difficult for them. So you've really got to set it out at the outset that we're going to have a risk adapted model. These are your risk factors. This is why it's low risk or why it's slightly higher risk. And you're likely to have treatment at some point and then, and then go from there. Yeah. And the, the trap with having these yearly MRIs is then you, then you fall into that problem of, of MRI being the sole trigger for the next decision, which is a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I, I we don't do that. I I don't have people on an annual MR basis. If I'm sort of that worried about them, I'm I'm encouraging them towards treatment because I think you know it's it's unsustainable for patients and and for the health service. And we do have to think about that. So with our with our risk adapted approach, we've reduced um, protocol biopsies by over seventy percent, and we've also reduced anxiety led treatment to less than one percent compared to 25 percent in you know international cohorts but we have to it's it's interesting you say that caroline because when i first started doing this you know 10 12 years ago i I was doing mris every three months i was going oh what the hell's happening here and then slipped and slipped and slipped and slipped and now it's uh, when you want one Wow, it's it's quite de-intensified, yeah. which is, I love the theme, by the way, it's one of our favourite themes is de-intensification in GU oncology. Yeah. It's almost the polar opposite of going to ASCO and seeing yet another gigantic combination of some ridiculously expensive thing with another ridiculously expensive thing. It must be built in very expensive biomarkers, etc. But, you know, de-intensification is really, really important. And yeah. uh, I like this. But um, so it, uh, for patients and clinicians listening to this, the if I'm hearing you correctly, Caroline, you don't. You no longer just routinely do a protocol biopsy at one to two years in someone um, well selected for active surveillance, um, and you may not even do an AMR at the one year point. So you're using the other tools we have. You know, baseline risk. You know, uh, uh, age, PSA, kinetics, PSA density, and so on. Is that right? So, so is that what we should be doing? And, and then, then I'm going to ask Anwar. Is that what the guidelines uh, tell us to do? Um, and and uh, <laughs> but we're creating data for the guidelines to then review Uh, so so i tend to do a confirmatory mr at a year and that's for so if people are coming from outside and i'm not happy with that mr then they have an mr before they're confirmed as being suitable for surveillance so there's got to be at the outset there's got to be concordance so that mr has to match their biopsy and whether that's non-visible and three plus three or or whatever and we'll repeat the MR and potentially repeat the biopsy until we've got a good picture of it all. And then I tend to do a 12-month confirmatory MR, although in some men that isn't necessary, but that's the sort of what, what I tend to do. And then after that, it's all risk adapted. Well, fantastic. Well, sounds very sensible, that I have to say. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you mentioned that, you know, out to 10 years, less than a third of men are, are getting those confirmatory biopsies. But we published data here in Australia last year from the Prostate Cancer Registry. So very wide capture, academic and community practice. Um, and we showed that uh, we, we set the bar pretty low to say what is an acceptable threshold for men on active surveillance and do they meet the threshold. And we, set, we specified um, at least one confirmatory biopsy uh, within two years of diagnosis and then we also had a PSA every, you know, I think three PSAs in two years or something. And only 25% of people were on a, were compliant. And this is like within three years of diagnosis. So, uh, and it was actually not just the, the, the biopsies they were missing. Some of them weren't even getting the PSAs, really inactive surveillance. So I think uh, we think there were clinic, clinician factors as well as patient factors. And in there, we clearly said, well, probably MR has come in and is pushed out. Us clinicians and patients are uh, supplanting the biopsy with the MR. Um, but I, I must say, I'm because I'm, UCL has led the, the world in so many aspects of prostate diagnostics, um, uh, I'm having to think now about all these patients we, we do confirmatory biopsies on. I do like doing the biopsies, though. Yeah, we we sep- separately published within the Prostate Cancer Registry in Australia that when you do that biopsy between 12 and 18 months, the, uh, the, the, the change from we would have described as insignificant to significant cancer is about 18% on biopsy alone. Yeah. And sometimes it is small. It's just the emergence of some pattern four, maybe not a lot, and some of them will stay on surveillance, but about 18% have that change so i think that's that's what we say to yeah, we have to have that discussion with patients is is uh, if they don't do that biopsy then that's what they don't get probably um but they may be picked up with that two years later or three years later maybe when it's going to matter but that that is that and that's very consistent data around the world i think that confirmed free biopsy shows some reclassification of the order of you know 20 25 percent and here it's all transperineal biopsy at diagnosis and at surveillance so they get well selected at diagnosis as well so, Declan, how much of that is progression? How much of that is just resampling? Yeah, so because transperineal biopsy is so widespread here, uh, I, I think there's not much change from a sampling point yeah. of view. Um, and certainly th- there's very few centres really still doing trust biopsy around Australia. Um, and not you know, This is in the community as well now. And and the reimbursement has changed in Australia to, to you know, uh, encourage transperineal. So they it is truly probably... Uh, reclassification for the majority of those but it may be subtle it may be just a little bit of pattern four and if you say to the patient oh my gosh it's really changed and now you need treatment you know that's one way of approaching it or another way you know maybe to say oh there's just a very slight change we'll, we'll keep an eye on this you know so that's what Caroline spoke about it's a failure yeah. sometimes if, if somebody just jumps the boat because perhaps we haven't laid out the the, 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 the clinical impact or lack of impact. I mean, I, I think it highlights just the heterogeneity of these patients. Is you know there are some, and there's a lot of restratification within that as well because I mean if there's one patient with one core of Gleason three plus three, yeah. then you know we we wouldn't be as worried about doing a confirmatory biopsy in those patients. But you know the non visible three plus fours that we put on active surveillance, you know that they're the ones that we get a little a little bit more anxious about. Yeah, but we, that's probably just us. Yeah, we need absolutely. to treat our anxiety. Yeah. Caroline Moore will say, "What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Why they, these are active surveillance patients. What's the what's the problem?" You know. Well, we know the you know, the long term outcomes in these patients are excellent, so we should yeah hold back. All right, so Renu, wrapping uh, up. Wrapping what's, what up are the messages all? for everyone out there from Anwar and Caroline? What did you take home from it? Well, I think I think that uh, you know I, I like the the concept that Caroline put out there that MRI really is a risk stratification a stratification tool in active surveillance. I, I think that would be my main take home message. Will it replace biopsy in your patients in clinic today? In my patients in clinic, like the today? one year confirmatory or eighteen month confirmatory biopsy. I have to think about that. <laughs> 
yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I think Absolutely. I I often Maybe. say to patients I think about myself, you know. But I, the other the other reason I like the confirmatory biopsy, by the way, uh, at twelve to eighteen months is because more than eighty percent of patients will have no change. I think then those patients you can really confidently say to them, "Well, we've called out the eighteen to twenty percent who've had some change uh, at biopsy, but the other eighty percent have had a, a whole year, year and a half to change, and they haven't." Uh, and I think you've really established that they're very good uh, candidates, and they can kind of of march confidently on into active surveillance and be really de-escalated. That's what the way I tend to approach them, but maybe we need to go a, you know, a step further. Or we'll yeah. wait till Caroline, Caroline's approach gets into guidelines, as we often do, and 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 uh, embrace that change yeah. as we did when she published um, And, and the, the concept of PSA density, I think, is also really important in these patients who have non-visible disease on MRI, um, and, and maybe we should be using that more, uh, factor it into our decision. Caroline, final thoughts from you before we go back to Anwar for his final thoughts so i think just being aware that it's an evolving field i think one of the things we haven't covered is that you really need to know how your center performs at mr because taking the results from a systematic review doesn't help if actually you're at the, the top end of the curve or the bottom end of the curve so know your results know how they correlate in the detection setting and the surveillance setting and, you know, it's all an ongoing dialogue with radiologists and with patients about what risks they're happy to accept. Great, Caroline. And what about you, Anwar? Final thoughts and, and maybe yes. just a, a thought on what's next in imaging for active surveillance? Mm. I have to say, I'm still, I still worry about using MRI, you know, in, in active surveillance because when I looked at the recent data on the number of men continuing active surveillance on the Prius study, I, it's, it seemed to me, yes, MRI is slowing the failure rate down, but it's not eliminating it. Um, and, 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 you know, the authors are talking about the fact that, you know, you have this ongoing anxiety and overtreatment that maybe MRI is driving some of that. And I think, you know, the way that Caroline was approaching this to me makes perfect sense you know you, you don't do the protocol use of mri you do the reactive use of mri uh, and and that i think will help to flatten that curve and keep people on active surveillance for a longer period of time fantastic fantastic what a great discussion yeah but i think we'll have to have this again in six months or 12 months because i feel it's such an evolving it field, is an evolving isn't it? field yeah absolutely Fantastic. Well, that's all we have uh, time for today. I'm I really wide awake now. Are you wide awake? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm pleased to hear it, Renu. You should be. Um, thank you so much, uh, Anwar Padani and Caroline Moore, for joining us from London on this lovely summer's evening over in London uh, and this winter morning in Melbourne. Great to have this update from two huge leaders in the field. Um, that's all we have time for today. We're going to be back with our theme of imaging, I'm sure, in the coming weeks because EAU is coming up, isn't it? Virtually. Absolutely, EAU. yeah. We'll definitely be back with that. And we'll be back with that and some more great international guests. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you, Dr.